0: Feels like Friday night football, doesn't it? <laughs> Drum line. I'm just glad no one booed when Philadelphia uh, came on the screen uh, for here in cowboy land, just kidding. Hey, uh, I'm so excited to be here with you today to kick off this brand new series called To the Church. Uh, if you're worshiping online, thank you for joining us. Uh, let me add my welcome to those who are in the room. I saw last week that this month is the 50th anniversary of the very first cell phone call. Isn't that amazing? caused me to think about just how much our cell phones have changed our our lives. Uh, If you're not physically present with someone today and you want to communicate with them, you have so many options, right? You can pull out your cell phone, you can call them, you can FaceTime them, you can text them, you can DM them, you can send them a a Snap Tweet or a Facegram, I don't know what the kids call it these days, you know, Uh, but before the cell phone, say 50 years ago, Face cream is not a word, I see you looking at that. Uh, no, before cell phones, things were different, right? If you weren't with someone uh, and you wanted to communicate with them, you basically had two options, right? You could call them on the phone, the kind that used to be attached to the wall, remember that? Or what was the other option you had? Send a letter, exactly, send a letter. Now, letters have kind of gone out of style. Most uh, kids these days don't know too much about letters, in fact, Uh, When my kids were in high school, we sent one of my kids to the post office, uh, true story, to get stamps for their graduation announcement and the postal worker said, what kind of stamps would you like? And this kid said, I don't know, whichever are cheapest. (laughs) So letters have gone out of style a little bit. (laughs) But letters were awesome. I mean, back in the day, letters were fantastic. I remember a time when uh, Joanna and I were dating and we were in different cities for a while and long distance was expensive and so we would write letters to each other and there was nothing like the feeling of walking to the mailbox and just hoping, is there a letter here today? Well, what I want you to do as we kick off this series is to imagine that you're a follower of Jesus in the year 95 A.D., and you're a part of a small church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and life is hard. Life is hard. You're under persecution from the Roman Empire. In fact, a law has been passed that you have to worship the emperor as God, and you're under threat of being put in prison or even executed. And you show up at church one day, and the leader of the church stands up and says, church, guess what? We got a letter this week, and the letter is from Jesus. Man, how excited would you be how much would you want to know what was in this letter, right? Well, for, seven mem- for church- members of seven churches in Asia Minor, that is exactly what happened. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, we find letters from Jesus to each of these churches. And while the circumstances in their churches were very different from the circumstances of our church, what we find is that across these seven letters, there are principles that apply to every church in every season. And I'm so excited over these next four weeks as we unpack these letters together to say, to find out, Jesus, what are you saying to our church? We're going to start this morning with the letter uh, to the church at Ephesus. This comes from Revelation chapter 2. I'll begin reading uh, at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, repent and do the things you did at first if you do not repent I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place but you have this in your favor you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who is victorious I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God may God bless the reading of his word Have you ever started watching a TV show uh, with season two? Can be kind of a a frustrating and confusing experience, right? If you're watching with someone who's seen season one, you spend half the time saying, wait, who's that guy? Is she his sister or her sister? Well, I think starting to read the book of Revelation in chapter two can feel a little bit like that. And so what I wanna do is to do what Joanne and I do when we have forgotten what happened in season one, we go online and read a little summary We're going to give just a quick summary of chapter 1 before we jump into this passage so that we're not lost. Sound good? Okay, Uh, so the book of Revelation, uh, like uh, a lot of the New Testament, is a letter. It was written by the Apostle John, the former fisherman turned disciple, uh, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote this letter of revelation to the seven churches I was mentioning to you before in Asia Minor. In fact, I think we have a map just so you can kind of get oriented. This modern-day Turkey here are these seven churches. And as I mentioned in the intro, these churches are going through terrible persecution. And John knew and he loved these churches but he was physically separated from them. He was in exile on an island called Patmos and so he couldn't be with them. Uh, And he wanted to encourage them, and as he thought and prayed uh, for them, one day he began to have a series of strange visions. And chapter one tells us the story of the first vision that John had. The first thing that happens is he hears a loud voice telling him, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he turns around to see where the voice is coming from, and he sees a vision of Jesus. But Jesus looks very different than he did when they were walking around together near the Sea of Galilee. In fact, things start to get very strange very quickly because the description of Jesus is, is really unusual. It says that Jesus has hair that's white like snow. He has eyes that are like blazing fire. His face is shining like the sun. His feet uh, look like bronze that's glowing in a furnace. And then in his hand, he's holding seven stars and he's walking around in and among these seven golden lampstands. And if that's not strange enough, out of his mouth is coming a giant sword. And if you're like me, you're saying, what in the world is happening here? Is this like some early Marvel movie script? Well, what's happening is the book of Revelation has a lot in common with an ancient genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. It's very common uh, at this time. And in apocalyptic literature, what you find is all of these really interesting and fantastic images, uh, these descriptions that seem like they're from a sci-fi movie. But in apocalyptic literature, the images aren't meant to be taken literally, they're meant, they're meant to symbolize something. It's a poetic way of, of communicating what the author is trying to convey. And in this case, what the Apostle John is, is communicating to these churches is that Jesus is more powerful than the Roman emperor. To these churches, I mean, the emperor was the chief Villain. He he, he inspired fear in all of them. And and, and what John is saying is Jesus is the first and the last. He is the one who died and rose to life again. He is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Yes, the emperor may be scary, but Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. And by the way, church, I just wanna say whatever you're facing today, the same thing is true. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger than cancer. Jesus is stronger than your challenges at work. He's stronger than depression and anxiety. Jesus is stronger and he will be victorious. So after this description, Jesus tells uh, John to write a letter to the churches, from Jesus to the churches. And chapters two and three contain the letters. And the letters all have different content but they follow the same form. Uh, They all start out with uh, a a greeting to the church and a title um, of Jesus. And then there's a combination of affirmations and warnings to the church, depending on the unique circumstances that they're in. And then there's an invitation and a promise at the end. Okay, so that's our quick summary of chapter one. And that brings us now to uh, this letter to the church at Ephesus. And when I think of this letter, the image that comes to mind for me is that of a coach. And when my kids were younger, I had the blessing of serving as uh, the coach of some of their sports teams, and it was a ton of fun. Uh, One of my favorite things was to work with individual kids on a a skill and to see the light bulb come on for them and and then start to have some success. Uh, I remember coaching baseball, this would happen a lot at batting practice, you'd have a kid that's just, you know, swing and miss, swing and miss. And then uh, a coach would pull the kid aside and explain to them that when the ball's coming in, um, their eyes are pointed at the outfield fence where they hope the ball's going to go, you know? And then the coach would teach them to kind of keep their, their head focused this way and their eyes on the ball. And after they would explain that, the kid gets back in the batter's box and it's, it's line drive, it's line drive after line drive. Why, why is that the case? Why does that, that little tip make all the difference? Well, it's because it's hard to see yourself, right? It's hard to see yourself. And this is true not just in Little League, this is true in all of life. What we, what we think we're doing is oftentimes not actually what we are doing. And so we need coaches. All of us need coaches, people who love us and care about us and can objectively look at us and and, in kindness and love say, hey, I know you don't see this, but this is where uh, you're falling short. And I think that's a good picture of what's happening in this passage. In this letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus is serving as the church's coach. He's telling them some things about themselves that otherwise they might have a hard time seeing. And in this passage, there are three main things that Jesus, Coach Jesus is telling this church. And all three of these apply to VRBC as well. The first thing Jesus says is, church, you are seen. Jesus tells the church at Ephesus just like he's telling us, I see you, I know you, I'm with you. Look at verse one. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so right off the bat here are two of those images that I was mentioning to you, right? And uh, Chapter one actually tells us what these images are. The seven golden lampstands, uh, chapter one says, are the seven churches that he's writing to. And the, these stars, the seven stars in his right hand represent uh, what chapter one calls the angels of these churches. That's an interesting phrase. Commentators have different ideas on what is meant by the angels of the churches. Some of them think it means literal angels, like each church has a guardian angel that watches over them. Others think it's like the leader of of those churches. Personally, I agree with Leon Morris and others who say that the the angel of the church represents that church's spirit, their, their heartbeat, their personality, so to speak. So, seven churches, seven stars, and where is Jesus? He's walking among them. He's right in the middle of them. And even more than that, he's holding them in his strong and mighty hand. These churches are going through a really tough time. You know, they must have felt anxious, right? They must have been afraid. And the very first thing Jesus says is, church, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm holding you in my hand. By the way, the the Greek word that's translated hold there isn't like, you know, balanced precariously on my hand. No, it means grasped, held onto without letting go. It's the word that would be used if a mother was holding her baby. Jesus is holding the church in his hand. And by the way, VRBC, it's not just true of the church at Ephesus, right? This is true of the church at VRBC, You know we're about to embark on a season of transition here uh, at VRBC as we send Pastor Larry off to his next assignment uh, as a, a professor at Truett Seminary. But we're not alone. Church, we are not alone. The Lord Jesus is walking among us. He's holding us in his mighty right hand. The same spirit that is calling Larry to Waco is the same spirit that is calling and leading us and guiding us and is here with us. He's not gonna let go. Jesus doesn't just say that he's with the church, he also says he's watching them. Look at verse two. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people. And he goes on to say he knows that they've kept their doctrine pure, they, they haven't given in to the false teachings of the Nicolaitans, they, they've persevered. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm going through a hard time, it's just easy to feel invisible, isn't it? Isn't it easy to feel like no one really knows, no one really knows what you're going through, no one really cares? And church, I mean, Jesus says, I see you. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know how hard you've been working for me and for my kingdom. I know things aren't easy and that you've been persevering. I know there've been people in your midst who've tried to lead you astray and you've stood firm. You've stood up for truth. I know it hadn't always been easy, but you've hung in there, church. I see you. I'm obviously not Jesus, but you know, I see so much of our church in this part of the passage. I've had the blessing of being here uh, for, for 22 years, and you know, one of the things that has impressed me the most about you is your perseverance, your faithfulness, your, your hard work. And we can be honest, right? It hasn't always been easy, has it? And we've walked through some tough seasons together. And There have been times where we weren't sure where the Lord was leading us, and different people had different ideas about where we should go, and there was tension and it was hard. We've been through uh, seasons where we've had difficult staff transitions and that was tough. We faced external pressures like the pandemic. But church, you've stood firm. You've held on, you've kept believing, you've kept holding on to Jesus, you've stayed committed to scripture, you've continued to serve our community, you've continued to pray, and I just want you to know Jesus sees it. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees our church, church we are seen. Now, when we're doing something uh, that pleases God, that feels like good news, right? Uh, But if you're like me, you know, uh, there's a lot of other times too, a lot of other times when I'm falling so short and Jesus sees that too and it may feel like bad news but I promise that's actually good news as well. But in this next section, what we hear Jesus say is church, you are warned. After Jesus tells them all the things he appreciates about them, the passage takes a really dark turn in verse 4. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And then this warning, if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is a radical departure from the previous verses, isn't it? Ephesus has worked, the church at Ephesus has worked hard. They've been so careful to watch their doctrine, but Jesus says they're in trouble. And why are they in trouble? Because they've lost their first love. They've forsaken, or some translations say abandoned, uh, the love they had at first. If you read the books of Acts and Ephesians, you, you find out that at one time the church at Ephesus was thriving Paul planted the church on one of his missionary journeys and he lived there for several years and this, this church grew strong and they continued to thrive but now years later, it's cratering. Jesus says, yes, you, you've worked hard, you've paid attention to, to doctrine but you've forgotten the most important thing of all. You've forgotten to love. And so this church that once was doing so well that they, they've lost their love for God, their love for one another and their love for world. And and then Jesus gives that sober warning. He says, if you don't repent, the consequences will be severe. I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. I think that's a really interesting image for a church, shouldn't it? A church is meant to be a lampstand, a, a platform on which the light of Christ can shine out to the surrounding community. But Jesus is saying here, without love, that can't happen. Because God is love, scripture tells us, and if we have lost our love, then the light of Christ cannot shine through us. The greatest commandment, what did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? To love the Lord your God, right? Heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what was the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Without these things, Jesus says the church will functionally cease to exist. This is scary, the the building may be there, people may come on Sunday, but it won't be a church in Jesus' eyes. Church, I don't mean to bring the room down, but this ought to scare us to death. This church of Ephesus is a cautionary tale for every church that's thriving. And make no mistake, VRBC is thriving right now. As I said, I've had the blessing of being here for for 20 years, but I can tell you without reservation that this most recent season in the life of the church has been, uh, in my estimation, the most joy-filled, the most unified, the most powerful of all of the time that I've had the privilege of being here. I mean, just think about what we've been seeing recently. We've been seeing people from all over the world give their lives to Jesus and follow him in baptism. We got to build a house in the parking lot and send it to a family in the Rio Grande Valley. We're getting to serve single moms through Viola's house. We're getting to serve our schools. We're experiencing such a a time of unity in our midst. We're going deep with one another in our our groups. We've just finished this series where we heard such powerful and beautiful stories of God working in our midst. Friends, VRBC is thriving right now. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Jesus is warning the church at Ephesus and if we're wise, we'll heed the warning too. We can't assume that just because we're thriving now means that we're not vulnerable. Yes, it's true that we've been saved by the grace of Jesus. Yes, it's true that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and there is no one who can pluck us out of Jesus' hand. Yes, it's true that as Romans 8 says, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord but we still live in a broken world. And we still have an enemy who right now is at work trying to distract us, trying to derail us. The the New Testament describes our, our enemy as a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus has already won the victory on the cross, but the effects of that victory have not yet been fully realized. And they won't be until the day when Jesus comes back and he completes his kingdom work. And until that glorious moment, church, we are vulnerable. This makes me think of a famous moment uh, from Super Bowl 27. Uh, this was the, the game where the Cowboys beat the Bills, uh, 52 to 17, this was one of the greatest days of my life. Um, also when my kids were born, that too, uh, those were good, good days. Uh, You may remember this moment that I'm talking about, Uh, late in the game, Cowboys defensive tackle Leon Lett recovered a fumble at at the Cowboys 35-yard line and for 64 glorious yards he rumbled toward the end zone. But as he got close to the goal line he started to celebrate and he slowed down and we have a picture here and he sort of just kind of held the ball out like this and he never saw Bill's receiver, Don Beebe, racing down the sideline just in time to punch the ball out of his hand right before he crossed the goal line. It's one of three times I've cried in my life. (laughs) Just kidding. What happened? He celebrated too soon, right? He forgot, listen, don't miss this, he forgot that he had an opponent who was actively trying to stop him, and he paid the price. Friends, even when we don't recognize it, even when it looks like there's nothing but green grass between us and the end zone, we are vulnerable. Our opponent is still running. Our opponent is still after us, and if we're not careful, we can get distracted and lose our first love. And you know, this isn't just a theoretical conversation, right? If, if you've lived very long, you've seen this happen. It happens all the time. I think about marriages. It happens a lot in marriages. On the wedding day, the couple is so in love, right? And everybody's dressed up and everything seems amazing and, and it looks like nothing could derail this relationship, but we've all seen this story, haven't we? That a few years down the road, this couple that was so in love, so connected, they, they feel like strangers, or worse, they feel like enemies. And the marriage falls apart. How can that happen? It seems uh, so unlikely on the wedding day, right? But, but the truth is, it's all too easy. What happened is they lost their first love. They lost the love they had at first. And listen, when I say love, I don't mean that, uh, that warm, fuzzy feeling of a Hallmark movie. I, I mean the core belief and conviction that outside of Jesus, their spouse is the most important person in the world and they would do anything to serve them, anything to see them thrive. They got distracted by other things, right? And the enemy caught them from behind, punched the ball out. They didn't nurture that thing that was the most important, their love for one another, and they paid the price. We've seen it happen uh, in marriages, but, but friends, it can happen to churches, it can happen to the bride of Christ, it happened in Ephesus in the first century and it can happen in Capel in the 21st century if we're not careful. And the way that it happens, the way that it happens is when a church takes its eyes off of Jesus. When we do the opposite of what we just sang about turn your eyes upon Jesus, it happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus and get distracted by other things. And these other things can be good things. It can be things like serving the community. Things like, planning worship services, maybe good things like uh, replacing a, a, new, a senior pastor after the old one's been here for 24 years. Friends, these are all good things and they are important things. Don't miss that, but listen. They're not ultimate things. They're important things, but not ultimate things. The ultimate thing for our church is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The ultimate thing for our church is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. The ultimate thing for our church is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to know that all these things will be added to us as well. Church, we can't afford to do anything else. Jesus is too good to miss out on. Jesus is too good to get distracted from. He is too beautiful to abandon. And not only that, the mission that he has given us is too vital, it's too crucial to get distracted from. Think about this for a minute. Across the world uh, today, there are people worshiping Jesus in millions of churches all over the world. But out of all those millions of churches, think about this, in his divine providence, God has seen fit to put only one church at 1501 East Beltline. Out of all the churches in the entire world, there is only one that is right here. I know that sounds obvious, but it's profound when you think about it, that there is only one church that God has called to make an impact for Christ in our surrounding neighborhood. Church, let's not let our lampstand be taken away. Jesus is too good. Jesus says, church, you are seen, and church, you are warned. But thankfully, that's not the end of the passage. The final thing Jesus says is, church, you are beckoned. You are beckoned. That's a word we don't use too often, but I think it's the right one for this section. When you beckon someone, you say, hey, come over here. Join me. Be be with me. It's kind of an intimate-feeling word. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 5. Right after he tells them they've forsaken their first love, he says... Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus tells them that they've lost their first love and that they're in danger, but it's not hopeless. Even after that that warning, he says the story is not over. There's a way back. He's beckoning them. He's inviting them to come back to to him. He's inviting them to go on a three-part journey that's gonna lead them back to their first love. I want to spend just a minute breaking down verse five. Uh, Look at this first phrase, and if you're taking notes, you might want to circle it. Consider how far you have fallen. Circle that, and out to the side, write, remember. Remember. Remember where you started. Remember what it was like when you first saw Jesus in all of his beauty. Remember when you were overwhelmed by the fact that he loves you, and that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that he's given you new life. That's the first part of the invitation, remember. And then the second part, repent. Circle that word, repent. To repent means to change your mind, to change your thinking, to say, you know what? I don't wanna be here anymore. I wanna be there. In my mind, I'm, I'm saying that you know my way is not the right way. Jesus's way is the way I wanna go. I'm turning around. And then after Jesus says repent, he says, do the things you did at first. Circle that and out to the side, write return. Return, go back to where you started. The door's not closed, God is still working, the Spirit is still calling. He's saying, come back, come back home. Remember, repent, return. Remember, repent, return. I think the story of the prodigal son is a good example of this journey. When the son had squandered all of his father's resources and he found himself starving, he remembered what it was like at home. He remembered that even his servants, even his father's servants had food to spare. And then he repented, he changed his mind. He said, I don't wanna be here anymore. I wanna be at home. But he didn't leave it mental, right? He actually took steps. He returned. He said, I'm gonna go back. I'm going back home. He returned. Remember, repent, return. This is the journey that Jesus invites the church at Ephesus to take. And friends, it's the the, the journey that he invites all of us to take individually and as a church to remember, repent, and return. And when we do, check out the promise. I love this, verse seven at the end of the passage. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In other words, to the one who trusts fully in Jesus, to the one who doesn't abandon their first love, to the one who does remember, repent, and return, Jesus promises to bring them home, to live with him forever. In Genesis, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God in paradise. But when they sinned, they were banished from the garden, right? And there's an interesting little detail at the end of this story, Um, the tree of life God places a guard in front of the tree of life, these flaming swords, so that no one can come and eat from it. But now, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he has reversed the curse. Jesus has defeated the enemy, he has won the victory, and now to the one who receives his grace, Jesus says, I'm taking you back. I'm taking you back to Eden, I'm taking you back to paradise. No longer is your sin keeping you out. No longer is your sin standing between you and that tree of life, the symbol of eternal, abundant life. I have paid the price for your sin. You are forgiven, you are free, and you are alive. Church, we are seen by Jesus. We are warned to remain faithful and we are beckoned to live lives of remembering, repenting, and returning until the day we eat from the tree of life together. The week I wrote this sermon, one of our readings from the growth guide was from John chapter 12. Jesus was at a dinner uh, just a few days before he would be crucified. Uh, and, and during this dinner, a group of people were, were sitting around with him, uh, eating and, and talking, and, and during the dinner a woman named Mary came in. and She was carrying a jar of, of perfume and she, and she knelt down at Jesus' feet and she began to anoint his, his feet with this perfume. And in Luke's version of the story, he adds the beautiful detail that she was crying and her tears fell on Jesus' feet. And you know, this doesn't happen to me every, every morning when I read scripture, but, but, but on that day, man, this story just grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go. I was just so struck by Mary's response to Jesus. And even more than that, I was, I was struck by how different her response was from everyone else around. I mean, they were all seeing Jesus, right? But everybody else was just eating, they were just uh, visiting, and she is undone. She's, she's weeping and her tears are mixing with the perfume as she anoints Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair. And I just thought to myself, what, what was it? What was it about Mary that allowed her to see Jesus in such a way that it, that it led to that kind of response? What was it about the condition of her heart in comparison to the people around that, that allowed her to be just totally undone by the beauty and love and glory of Jesus? And then I just prayed. I said, God, please let me see Jesus that way. Please let me see Jesus' beauty and grace and love so clearly that I'm undone. And church family, that's my prayer for our our church in this season. I just pray that Jesus would let us see him so clearly that we would see his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness, his kindness, his mercy, his love so clearly that we would never even think about forsaking our first love. And that in those moments when we do get distracted for just a moment, my prayer is that we would quickly remember, repent, and return, and that we would spend our lifetimes together loving and serving Jesus, our first love. May it be so in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this letter written 2,000 years ago but so so applicable to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you see us. And we thank you, even though it's hard, we thank you for this warning, God. We don't don't want to lose our first love. We don't wanna forsake the love we had at first. So we pray that you would keep us close, keep us close to you. And then when we do stray, give us the grace to remember quickly, to repent and to return. May it be so, in Jesus' name, amen. Every time we uh, read the Word of God and, and think about it and meditate on it, it requires uh, a response from us. And I just want to give a few uh, options, a few thoughts uh, for you. Uh, some here today, maybe you haven't experienced Jesus' grace and beauty from a personal perspective. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you've kind of hung around. Uh, but I wonder if today is the day for you to say, I don't, I don't believe that Jesus is just the Lord. I want Him to be my Lord. One of our college students did that this week and gave his life to Jesus. Maybe today's the day for you to do that. Others, maybe, maybe you're like Leon Lett and you celebrated a little too soon and and the enemy has caught up from behind and I just wanna tell you, it's not too late. It's not too late. Jesus is saying, come back. And when he says repent, by the way, that's not, hey, feel shame, it's come home. Repenting is to come home. And maybe... Maybe you just today wanna say, I I wanna stand in prayer for this church in this season. In a minute, we're gonna stand together and sing a song together, and the prayer rail, as it always is, will be open. I'd love to invite many people to come down, maybe some of our, our leaders and others who care about our church to come down and just pray to intercede for our church and say, Lord Jesus, please don't let us lose our first love. Please let us keep our eyes fixed on you. I'd love to invite you to come pray for our church. And so at this time, let's stand together as we respond as the Spirit leads.